Again, good morning, and thank you so much for the patience and hospitality that all of you have shown over the last number of weeks as I've been able to come and preach online as myself and my family have been sick. It's never fun to be sick, but even less so to watch as your wife and your children suffer through it as well. And thankfully, at this point, it seems that everyone in my clan has finally turned the corner and seem to either be healthy or in the last stages of getting healthy. And I also want to thank everyone who made it to our annual meeting yesterday evening. It's always such a blessing to see the church membership coming together to meet and recount what God has done over the past year and to make plans and preparations and excitement for the year to come. God has indeed blessed us in more ways than we can ever imagine. Even in the midst of the chaos of the last 12 months, um, he has steadied and he has preserved his church and has shown his faithfulness through it. And in chaotic times, it becomes all too easy to cling to what is familiar and comforting. There's a reason why typical comfort food has a stereotype as being unhealthy. Um, But at the same time, it seems to be what we cling to when things go sideways. That being said, it's not surprising that our author in the book of Hebrews is warning his people against returning to the unhealthy spiritual comfort food in the form of their traditional Judaism. To be a Jew or a Christian in the mid to late first century was not a comfortable nor a worry-free existence. As such, we should resonate with that a little bit. General tensions and between the traditional Jews and the early church aside, you also had major societal pressures, not the least of which being the Roman Emperor Nero, who famously hated Christians and also would end up being the one that would preside over the destruction of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. Much of what we have been reading in the recent chapters in Hebrews has been an extension of the warning that I gave last week, warning against returning to that which is comfortable but useless. We've seen how our author has spoken of the familiar Old Testament institutions, the covenants, the priesthood, and the tabernacle. But today we rehash chapter 9 of Hebrews to get on one of probably the most untouchable of the Old Covenant institutions in the sacrifice. In my mind, when I look at it, I see the sacrifice as probably the most untouchable because all of the other elements had changed in one respect or another. The covenants had built on and modified one another as God had continued to reveal himself to his people. The priesthood had grown and changed. New priests were selected on a regular basis. The tabernacle had grown from a modular tent in the wilderness into Solomon's temple and Herod's temple, which is what our audience would have been familiar with. But from the first 
chapters of the book of Genesis. The first ones that took place outside of the garden. The blood of sacrifice was the price of communion with God. Genesis chapter 4. Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. These are the third and fourth humans ever to exist on planet Earth. And from them onwards, God's faithful had retained the practice of the sacrifice. As we read in Hebrews 9.22, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. So as we delve into a little bit to the old covenant sacrificial system, how it too, for our original audience, was becoming obsolete, growing old, and becoming ready to vanish away. As we dive into that, would you join with me in prayer? Our God and our Heavenly Father, we come before you as people who have never known what it is to need to bring a sacrifice of goats and sheep and cattle in order to know and worship you. And Lord, for that, we are most sincerely grateful. We thank you that you have seen fit to bring us into a time on earth where that sacrifice, the great sacrifice, has already been accomplished. And Lord, as we spend time in your word, coming to know what you have to say about these things, we ask that you would guide and direct our thoughts and our hearts, that you would continue to make our hearts fertile ground for your word, that it might grow and take root and change us, and that we might see an act of your Holy Spirit that would show us what it means that no, no word of Scripture is without you that you are infused into every word of your word and that this is how you have chosen to communicate with your people and that we might hang on each word. God, may we know the value of the blood of Christ. May we know the value of the sacrifice that was accomplished upon the cross. And may we live as ones who are bought with that price. Lord, we commit these things to you and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. So diving in, would you please turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. And we're going to start in verse 6 through to the end. Again, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 through to the end of the chapter. These preparations, having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, 
performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For of the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer, suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is God's holy word. Verses 1 through 5 deal specifically with the fittings of the tabernacle. And like we looked at last week, the highlight of everything going on in the tabernacle was the Day of Atonement, the one day per year where the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies before the mercy seat to make atonement for himself and his house, and the fittings of the tabernacle, and the people of Israel. That was the basis 
on which people related to God. An intricate system of laws and sacrifices that culminated in the Day of Atonement. And in a divinely inspired editorial comment, our author tells us in verse 8 and 9, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. By the inspiring work of the Holy Spirit, God himself reveals to us in this comment what is happening in the sacrifices. They serve as a physical reminder of the barrier between mankind and the thrice holy God. So long as those two veils stand between the people and the Lord, the old covenant reigns. But upon the rending of the veil at the death of Christ, the paradigm shifts. No longer do we approach the Lord vicariously through an earthly representative in the Levitical priesthood. No longer are our sins temporarily managed via means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of Christ's own blood. Verses 12 to 14 and verses 23 to 28 of our passage this morning are the two key passages that identify the alternative to these traditional sacrifices to which our audience would have been accustomed. And thankfully for our audience, our author doesn't just kind of cut the legs out from under the Old Testament sacrificial system and leave his audience hanging. Instead, he then replaces it with something better. Not just no more sacrifices. Instead, Christ the greater sacrifice. The blood of animals exchanged for the blood of Christ, the Messiah. Christ entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? In Leviticus 17.11, God warns his people, saying to them, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Blood has always been the price of reconciliation with God. Life for life. But up until this point, the point of Christ's shedding of blood, it has always been symbolic. An animal's value in creation is far beneath that of man. So the question that many have asked, even today, is why the sacrifice of these animals would even be required in the first place. Our author answers that it was always looking forward to the sacrifice that would be made by Christ. He goes on to say in verse 15 that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgression committed under the first covenant. Without Christ, those who had sacrificed animals under the old covenant 
had accomplished nothing. In Romans 3, Paul explains that all are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith, and that in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In preparation for Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, God passed over and held off judgment upon those who were under the old covenant until he would inaugurate the new covenant in Christ. Those whom God had chosen, who obeyed the Lord under the old covenant, are equally as in need of the justification that comes from Christ as those who are under the new covenant. God was glorified that no one, no matter which covenant, would be justified outside of the blood of Christ. Neither the patriarchs of Israel nor us here this morning have any hope of righteousness without the shed blood of Christ. But by obedience in the sacrifices, the patriarchs found in the old covenant, they showed themselves to be faithful before God. And thus God applied the blood of Christ, which the blood of their animal sacrifices had symbolized. For indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. I think it's easy to get things confused here. Based on what our author was saying, it makes sense that the things of the earthly tabernacle would require the purification of blood. And admittedly, I have found myself on a number of occasions scratching my head at the thought of Christ needing to purify the heavenly things. What in heaven needs to be purified? Brothers and sisters, it is not that the heavenly things needed to be purged of sin as no sin can exist in heaven. But they did need to be consecrated or prepared for the holy purpose which they are meant to be used. There was nothing inherently sinful about the fittings of the tabernacle. But to prepare them for the use, they had to be purified with blood. And so must the heavenly things. And I confess, I had to wrestle with this passage. What could it possibly mean when it's talking about this purification of heavenly things? Is it we as believers who are purified? Is it something in heaven that's purified? Is it the offerings that we bring as believers? But then it dawned on me that to some extent it's all of the above. Without the consecrating effects of the blood of Christ on the courts of heaven, the courts of heaven would be just as hazardous just as hostile of an environment to us as the Holy of Holies was for any who would have dared to approach in an unworthy manner. Without the blood of Christ, if we were to step into the courts of heaven, 
we would have been struck just as dead as those who would have approached the mercy seat in an unworthy manner. This purification is not a purging of sin, but a preparation, a paving of the way. The veil is torn between God and man. The believer is called to come before the throne of grace in the holiest place. But if for a moment you or I were to come before God in an unworthy manner outside of the blood of Christ, we would be destroyed, killed as surely as Aaron was warned not to come at any time into the holy place inside of the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. 1 Peter 2 says that we ourselves are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Just as the priests had to be purified before they could attend to their tasks, so Christ has purified his church to act as a royal priesthood, bringing their sacrifices before their God. And if we are to bring these sacrifices as believers, in Romans 12, Paul appeals to his reader, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How could you or I ever present any worship that would be acceptable to God? When we come to church on Sunday mornings and we sing our songs of worship and we pray in worship and we read the word in worship, none of that has any value outside of the shed blood of Christ. All of our righteous deeds are identified in Isaiah 64 as being like a polluted garment. We may only worship found in the living sacrifice of our bodies if it is purified by the blood of the true sacrifice who is Christ. Not even our worship songs on Sundays can go before the Lord without the blood of Christ. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. I gave a heads up and a warning to our members at our meeting last night. We were able to participate together in communion. And our final piece of the puzzle in today's passage deals with something that has been the subject of great debate and schism among those who would call themselves Christ's church. Verses 25 and 26 are at the center of a primary disconnect with the Protestant church and the Roman Catholic religion. We being ourselves a part of the Protestant church take this passage at 
face value. Believing that Christ has indeed appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That Christ's sacrifice was truly a one-time event that need not be repeated and cannot be repeated without robbing the entire thing of its total value. Where this interferes with our ability to reconcile with the Roman Catholic religion is our understanding of what they call the Eucharist. The Eucharist literally means thanksgiving. What the Roman Catholics call the Eucharist is what we typically call the Lord's Table or Communion, and the two could not be further apart. When we as a church gather around the Lord's table, we do so believing that the Lord's Supper, which is the memorial wherein the believer partakes of the two elements, bread and fruit of the vine, which symbolize the Lord's body and shed blood, proclaiming his death until he comes. That is directly out of our church statement of faith. But the Roman Catholic Church, and allow me to make a side note, when I'm repeating what the Roman Catholic Church believes here. I'm taking it directly from the Vatican's own catechism of the Catholic Church. So this isn't a, a uh, guess at what it is that the Roman Catholics believe. But for the Roman Catholic religion, there's been a grave misunderstanding that has led them to believe that, and I quote, Holy Communion separates us from sin. The body of Christ we receive in Holy Communion is given up for us and the blood we drink shed for the many for the forgiveness of sins. For this reason, the Eucharist cannot unite us to Christ without at the same time cleansing us from past sins and preserving us from future sins. They believe that in what they call the Eucharist that there is salvific sin-cleansing power. And much of that stems from their understanding of the sacramental sacrifice. They believe that in the Eucharist, there is a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Father. And that, again, I quote, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only the manner of the offering is different. In this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. It's, it's hard for me to even read that. When defending that understanding, Roman Catholics will often state that it's, the Eucharist is not a repeated sacrifice so much as a represented sacrifice. But however you frame this understanding, I and the many members of the Protestant and Reformed faith before me simply cannot reconcile that with the words of our passage today. That Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once, 
for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Our Savior is not re-sacrificed. And he is not continuing to be sacrificed. Our Savior is not, to use the word in the Catholic Catechism, a victim of the sacrifice of the Eucharist as we gather around the Lord's table. When we come to the Lord's table, we remember what our Savior has accomplished. We declare what he has done. We worship a Savior who has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Past tense. Our Savior no longer hangs upon a cross. That's also the difference between the Protestant crosses that we typically see and the Roman Catholic crucifixes that depict Jesus still hanging upon that cross. According to Hebrews 1, the very opening of this book, our Savior, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down. So the purification has been made, then he sat down, past tense, at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become, already done, as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Upon the eve of the passing away of the old covenant, our Savior said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Neither our author's Hebrew audience and their Jewish backgrounds nor our modern Roman Catholic counterparts recognize the completed nature of the sacrifice. Both saw or see in some way that a continuation of the sacrifice as being necessary. Our salvation, the expulsion, expulsion and the cleansing of our sins is not dependent on our own actions or our own sacrifices. But all our sacrifices, all our actions, everything that we do that pleases God the Father is based on the finished work of Christ on the cross, who has purified the heavenly things, the spiritual things, the eternal things by the shedding of his own blood. Once for all. By, through, in, and because of that promise, we persevere in the faith. And that perseverance is done in hope. For we know that just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Brothers and sisters, as we have worshipped together here this morning in prayer, and singing, and reading of the word, and in fellowship. We have done so under the umbrella of the completed sacrifice of Christ. 
And if we have not done so, then what we have done is of no value. Because everything we do is tainted by our own worldly, sinful selves. But when we do it under the work of Christ, covered by the sacrifice of Christ, the shed blood of the perfect sacrifice who entered one time into heaven to purify, all of a sudden it becomes a beautiful thing and a sweet offering to our God that he accepts as it comes through his son. And praise God that he will come again soon to his people who are waiting for him. And that blood, that sacrifice that we believe in and we place our trust in is what allows us to persevere and wait for him unto the very end. Let's pray. Our God and our Heavenly Father, it is not easy for us to understand the magnitude of what you have done. For we are finite beings, and you have done something of infinite value. Lord, may we take the rest of our lives on this earth and the rest of eternity with you to come to understand and enjoy and appreciate the work that you have done through your son on the cross. That he has bridged the gap between man and you. That his death was the means for the rending of the veil in the temple that separated your people from you. That we no longer have to approach you vicariously through a priest. That we no longer offer animal sacrifices, but that the one great sacrifice has been made and we bring sacrifices of thanksgiving in our own living bodies that we present ourselves as living sacrifices to you, saying, God, do with us as you please. And God, I ask that you would do with Elk Point Baptist Church as you please. And that you would give us the wisdom and the discernment to see what you are doing and to pursue it wholeheartedly. That the vision and the direction of this church might be entirely wrapped up in what you are doing. and most importantly, what you have done. Lord, may we not be led astray by the things that are comfortable and familiar, but useless. No matter what it might be that would pull our hearts and minds away from you, may we recognize that spiritual junk food is spiritual junk food, and it will kill us. But you have given us the bread of life. That from you flow streams of living water that will cause us to thirst no more. 
And may we feed upon that. God, we give you all honor and glory and praise. And we do so knowing that it is only by your Son that we can. And I pray if there are any who are led astray or who do not yet know you, who hear this message, that they might come to know you and come to appreciate what you have done the way that we do. That they might see the infinite value of the sacrifice of Christ on their behalf for your glory and be forever changed. Lord, we thank you for this time together and ask in your will that we might be able to meet again like this next week. We even ask that we won't have to meet again like this last week for you shall return and allow us to know these things and to know you face to face that we might see the culmination of that promise that you would come and be our God and that we would be your people and that we would know you. We thank you for these things and we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand with me as you're able and hear the benediction from Hebrews 13. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that, that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.